Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Thank you, investigators, for joining me for today's episode on our continuing New York state of crime season. Today's case is one of the most compelling to me out of the whole state. It is the curious death of Dorothy Kilgallen. We mentioned her in last week's episode. She was a crack reporter and got really close to solving some crimes I think that people really didn't want to be solved. I do have a little glorious bit of writing coming from Dominic on Dorothy Kilgallen, but two fantastic references that I can provide to you. The first is a biography written by Lee Israel in 1979 called Kilgallen. The next is a whole arc of work from another author, Mark Shaw, who has recently come out with some fantastic writing and trying to investigate again Dorothy Kilgallen's curious death. What makes it so curious? I do want to begin our intro here with just this amazing write-up from the Washington Post. It's a book review about Lee Israel's book, Kilgallen, but the write-up is by no less than Rita Mae Brown. This is from November 18th, 1979, and Rita Mae really does a very good job of setting the stage here. Dorothy Kilgallen's death on November 8th, 1965, was treated by many as just another high-strung female checking out of Hotel Earth. Since she was a person many loved to hate, her sins being intelligence, perseverance, and right-wing political affections, her supposed suicide gratified her detractors. However, Lee Israel's carefully researched book indicates the chances of Dorothy Kilgallen, a devout Catholic, having committed suicide are about the same as your being struck by a meteorite. Wanting to break the story of the century regarding John F. Kennedy's assassination, Kilgallen, a reporter first and foremost, had every reason to live. So what happened? How is Dorothy Kilgallen, crime reporter, so close to cracking the case of a lifetime, found dead in what is considered a suicide, which absolutely isn't all evidence bears out to testify? Let's investigate. Within Dominic Dunn's vast array of written work, he does mention Dorothy Kilgallen quite a few times within his articles for Vanity Fair. There is one little beauty of an archive piece I found. This is from Dominic Dunn's diary, published in April 2006 from an entry called Spilling Secrets. Dominic writes, It amazes me how many people remember the mysterious death in 1965 of Dorothy Kilgallen, the controversial gossip columnist and television personality, which was reported in the headlines nationwide as an accidental overdose of sleeping pills and liquor. On January 25th, when I was a guest on Larry King Live, a woman called in from Tulsa, Oklahoma, to ask if I had known Kilgallen and if I had any opinions about her death. I hadn't given a thought to the columnist for decades, but a rush of information came out of my mouth as if I had taken something long forgotten out of a storage vault. 
When I first lived in New York City in the 1950s, Kilgallen was a huge celebrity. Her Sunday night television show, What's My Line, was watched by millions, and her daily column, The Voice of Broadway, in the New York Journal-American, was so popular that she gave the great Walter Winchell a run for his money. She also happened to be a first-rate crime reporter, as her father, Jim Kilgallen, had been before her in the Hearst Papers. She broke stories. She covered trials, including the famous courtroom drama of Dr. Sam Shepard, whose conviction for murdering his wife was later overturned. Dunn continues, Kilgallen was not a pretty woman. She had an unfortunate chin, which robbed her face of beauty. But on opening nights at El Morocco and the Stork Club, she projected an aura of glamour with her magnificent evening dresses and jewels. She had wit, power, and a mean streak. Everybody read her, and a lot of people were afraid of her. Frank Sinatra hated her. Both Johnny Carson and Jack Parr disliked her and took pot shots at her. She was married for years to Richard Colmar, the father of her three children, and they had an early morning radio show called Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick. She went to Mass on Sundays. She was a heavy drinker, and she took second all to sleep. She had lovers, and at one point she fell madly, passionately in love with the effect singer Johnny Ray, whose greatest hits were Cry and The Little White Cloud That Cried. Ray's romantic inclinations, however, went in another direction. With her fame and her contacts, Kilgallen was able to get what was perhaps the only interview Jack Ruby ever gave before he died in prison. Ruby was the mystery man who shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin of President Kennedy, in the Dallas police station two days after Kennedy died, in one of the most watched and shocking historical moments ever recorded on television. Ruby owned a nightclub in Houston called The Carousel, and he had friends both on the police force and in the mafia. How he was allowed to be in the station at the moment Oswald, shackled and surrounded by police, was being moved through it remains a baffling question. Kilgallen, a conspiracy theorist, never believed that Ruby killed Oswald out of some deep affection for President Kennedy, as the Warren report suggested. She died within months of interviewing him. What I recalled for the woman from Tulsa was a persistent rumor at the time that the sleeping pills in Kilgallen's stomach had not dissolved, which meant that they were undigested. Liz Smith, another famous gossip columnist, told me recently that the late Arlene Francis, who was also on the panel of What's My Line, had been with Kilgallen the evening she died, and she always maintained that Dorothy was not drunk that night. I forgot to tell the woman who called in that no notes or tapes from the Ruby interview have ever been found. Kilgallen told people that she was going to break the case, so Ruby must have told her something that someone important didn't want her to print. At least that's my interpretation. She once wrote in her column that if Lee Harvey Oswald's widow ever told the whole story of her life with Oswald, it would split open the front pages of newspapers all over the world, according to Lee Israel in her biography of Kilgallen. There was talk that the CIA had silenced her, but it was never proved. Secondall and vodka were given as the official cause of death. She was found in bed in her townhouse on East 68th Street, 
but it was not the bed she normally slept in. She was in full makeup, including false eyelashes. She had been reading a novel by Robert Rourke, which was by her side. Although Kilgallen could not read without her eyeglasses, the police report made no mention of any on or around the bed. In later years, when I worked in live television, I became a friend of Dorothy's younger sister, Eleanor Kilgallen, who was the New York casting director for Universal Studios in Hollywood. A couple of times after a couple of drinks, I asked Eleanor about Dorothy's death and the ruby notes. She would never talk about it, and she made me feel like a skunk for asking, but I was dying to know the truth. Since that call from Oklahoma, I have been thinking once again about Kilgallen's death, and so are a lot of people I've been hearing from. Holy cats, what a few paragraphs, right? This is April 2006. So let's go back and talk a little bit about some of that and Dorothy's background. Dorothy is a girl reporter, a television star. She is the scene. Dorothy is born July 3rd, 1913 in Chicago, Illinois. Her father is a journalist for the Hearst Papers, and the family's going to move around a lot. Dorothy does a little bit of time in college, but she's ready to make things happen for herself. She'll drop out of school and her dad will get her an internship for the Hearst Papers and Dorothy's doing great. By the age of 18, she's sitting on trials and is the girl crime reporter covering the trials of such notables as Anna Antonio in 1934, Eva Koo and Richard Bruno Hauptmann, both in 1935. September 1936 is even bigger because Dorothy is going to take place in a race around the world. She and two fellow newsmen, Bud Eakins of the New York World-Telegram and Leo Kieran of the New York Times, Dorothy is competing for the New York Journal-American, and the three of them, this is the beginning of commercial air travel, y'all. They race around the world to see who can make their trip around the world the fastest. Dorothy's going to come in second, It takes her 24 days in 1936 to make it around the world. Bud Eakins will win that race at 21 days. But no matter, Dorothy is going to publish her book, Girl Around the World, after that. The following year, she will write a film script about this experience called Fly Away Baby. Movies aren't really where it's at for Dorothy. She wants to get back to writing. So she will come back and return to her job at the New York Journal In November of 1937, she's given her own column. This one is called Hollywood Scene. But the following year, she will begin writing a new column for the newspaper, which she will become legendary for. This column is called The Voice of Broadway. 1940 is a big year. Dorothy's going to get married to this guy named Richard Colmar. He is famous for playing Boston Blackie on the radio. He's an actor and a singer, and they're going to have three kids and kind of a wide open marriage. Richard is an alcoholic womanizer, and Dorothy's Catholic, so not really a happy marriage. They're just going to ride it out, really. This is from Rita Mae Brown, and I just thought there was just a few choice sentences in here. Rita Mae Brown writes in that same 1979 Washington Post piece, Unfortunately for Kilgallen, her husband, Richard Colmar, didn't work too hard at anything. When she married him in 1940, he was a young actor of some success, 
He then produced a few Broadway shows, operated nightclubs, and piddled with mixed results. Had he not married a powerhouse, he might not have looked so weak. Like many husbands with dynamic wives, he retreated into compulsive seduction and alcohol. Yet Dorothy remained faithful to him until the late 50s when she embarked on a tempestuous affair with singer Johnny Ray. Singer Johnny Ray will be determined to be the father of Dorothy's third child, but from that paragraph, right? Richard Colmar married a powerhouse, and Dorothy is kind of making it happen for them. She's the busiest lady in business. She has her voice of Broadway column, but she and Dick have that radio show too. It's called Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick. This is going to launch in 1945. It airs Monday through Saturday from 8.15 in the morning to 8.55 in the morning. That's the Monday through Friday run. Saturdays, it goes a little later from 11.30 to 12. But the show, Brilliant, is recorded from their five-story townhome in New York. They record in their pajamas, and I can really respect that. Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick is getting a million listeners a day. I can't tell you between her written work, her being on the front row of all of these trials, her voice of Broadway column, Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick. Holy cats, like she's getting to millions of people on a daily basis. Her influence is significant. In 1950 comes along a little show, What's My Line? It is the most popular game show in the country. What's My Line is probably worth a whole episode on its own, but the show airs Sunday night on CBS with millions of viewers each week. So the celebrity panel will try to guess the occupation of the random stranger that has come on through a series of questions that can only be answered yes or no. And for every no answer, the person with the weird job will get five bucks. But the thing I really need you to know is that Dorothy Kilgallen is the smartest and wittiest panel member. She's always playing to win. There are some celebrities that come on What's My Line, and this time the panel gets blindfolded. It's an amazing show. Go, There's plenty of reruns out there on YouTube and other sort of archival ways to watch. It's a fascinating little slice of television. So TV, pretty fun, right? But never forget that Dorothy is an inquiring girl journalist. She's super respected too. She has a lot of integrity and she's listened to. You don't pull the wool over Dorothy Kilgallen's eyes. She gets sued a few times because of this, but she's also going to get some convictions changed for people that she thought were innocent. Like Dorothy Kilgallen is a warrior for justice, friends, long before Dominic Dunn was on the scene. Her voice of Broadway column, which is a gossip column, but she's also writing up criminal trials as well, ends up getting syndicated in 200 papers daily. 20 million people a day are reading the Voice of Broadway column. Few fun things here. Ernest Hemingway, no less, will call her the greatest living female writer. I like how he makes that qualification. I do also want to circle back and talk about the nasty feud that Frank Sinatra and Dorothy Kilgallen have. So sometimes her reporting does land her in hot water, but Frank Sinatra is kind of a jerk. 
So Frank and Dorothy are friends back in the day, but then Dorothy begins writing about Frank Sinatra's bad behavior and how he is kind of a real jerk to women and who he dates and his girlfriends and kind of calling out his terribleness. And then Frank Sinatra builds her into his act. Frank Sinatra will begin calling Dorothy, God, this is terrible, the chinless wonder. He picks on her looks. Frank Sinatra will send her a fake tombstone. And Dorothy's just mad. She's going to write more columns telling the world how terrible Frank Sinatra is. Every time he goes to visit New York State, he makes fun of her. Y'all, this is terrible. He would use a key on stage and say this is what her figure looked like. Uh, He would pass the baskets around for people to donate money to buy her a chin. Big funny man there, Frank. He's such a jerk. Like, Dorothy Kilgallen is brilliant and amazing, and Frank Sinatra is just mean. Oh, here's another thing he said. Hey, if you're going to run into Dorothy Kilgallen, do it with a car. What? As we have seen through how Frank treated Dominic Dunn in the 60s, it is a good reminder of how very cruel that Frank Sinatra could be. By the early 60s, Dorothy has written up uh, allegations of an affair happening within her column, that there's a politician having an affair with the blonde star. And a lot of people, when they read this, think it's Jack Kennedy. But alas, she's not referring to Jack. She's referring to Bobby Kennedy. Marilyn Monroe is dead two days later after that column is published. Dorothy gets close to stories, y'all. But Dorothy wasn't saying that about Jack Kennedy. She knows Jack Kennedy. They've partied together back in the day. They've played charades together. They used to hang out at the stork club together. Dorothy's actually friends with a few of his mistresses. Dorothy's going to take her youngest son, Carrie, to see Jack Kennedy at the White House. And Carrie brings in letters from his third grade class. And the president spends a lot of time, a long time, a lot of time with her kid gives him a PT-109 pen. So it is understandable with this close affiliation with the president, also being a firm supporter of his administration, that Dorothy is gutted when JFK is assassinated on that Friday, November 22nd, 1963. Dorothy Kilgallen is also the best investigative reporter in the country and is calling foul all day on this idea that Lee Harvey Oswald is the lone assassin. Of course, Dorothy Kilgallen is about to investigate, and she's credible too. Now's a great time. Take a quick break to hear from our Done and Done sponsors this week. When we come back, we're going to get into it. So again, Dorothy thinks this theory of Lee Harvey Oswald being the lone assassin is utterly ridiculous. And this is all that J. Edgar Hoover is purporting. Lone assassin, lone assassin. She is one of the handful of American journalists who is publicly expressing skepticism of this lone assassin theory, which is being heavily pushed by the FBI, universally pushed out by the American press. In her columns, she feels that the investigation that is happening around the death of the president is pitifully inadequate. She will tell her friends that the assassination had to be a conspiracy. So not only is Dorothy 
skeptical of the lone assassin theory, her columns also are pretty disdainful of the secondary theory that Jack Ruby, the owner of the Carousel Club, this honky-tonk strip joint, can walk into the Dallas police station and that easily murder on live television Lee Harvey Oswald. That just doesn't make sense to her. There's something queer, she says, about the killing of Oswald. Jack Ruby, Dorothy will maintain, was a gangster with ties to the local police, and she believes that Oswald's murder was a mafia hit. In a column that she writes, published one week after the president's assassination, she will write, I'd like to know in a big, smart town like Dallas, a man like Jack Ruby can stroll in and out of police headquarters as if it was a health club at the time when a small army of law enforcers is keeping a tight security guard on Oswald. Security. What a word for it. She just can't understand how Jack Ruby just wandered in so casually to kill Lee Harvey Oswald. Dorothy Kilgallen will be the only reporter to interview Jack Ruby in jail. She does this twice. She will write it up with the headline, Nervous Ruby Fears Breaking Point is Near. Dorothy is familiar with Marvin Belli, who is Jack Ruby's lawyer. After speaking to Jack Ruby, Dorothy does not head to Washington, D.C. She does not head to New York. She does not go to Dallas. She goes immediately to New Orleans, Louisiana to investigate, presumably from something that Jack Ruby told her. Now, New Orleans is straight into the mafia den of Carlos Marcello, who is the head of the New Orleans crime family. Dorothy's investigating. The FBI is questioning her about her sources and what she's got, but Dorothy's not giving up anything, nothing, especially anything she's finding out in New Orleans. During Jack Ruby's murder trial, she will talk to him in the back of the courtroom, but just before this murder trial began, in February 1964, one of her columns noted that the government had refused to provide Ruby's defense counsel with certain requested information concerning Lee Harvey Oswald. She describes the refusal as Orwellian and writes, It does make you think, doesn't it? It appears that Washington knows or suspects something about Lee Harvey Oswald that it does not want the rest of the world to know. Who is Oswald anyway? The Jack Ruby trial commences in March of 1964. Again, there are two interviews with Jack Ruby, each lasting about 10 minutes that Dorothy has. In the summer of that year, August 1964, Kilgallen will publish a then-classified transcript of the testimony Jack Ruby had given at the secret session of the Warren Commission two months earlier. The transcript is leaked to Kilgallen by an undisclosed source, but it will startle the public. Number one, it reveals that the questioning of Ruby by the commission members, these men who had been specially chosen to investigate and report on the murder of the American president, had been shockingly inept. The second thing that comes out is it is revealed that even though Ruby had told the commission, I want to tell the truth and I can't hear, certain people don't want to know the truth that may come out of me, the Warren Commission for no good reason whatsoever, Flatley will turn down Jack Ruby's plea to be transferred outside of the state of Texas where he could tell his truth where he could not there. 
It is September of 1964 when the Warren Report is released, and I don't know, friends, it's kind of laughable. Like, it's not the truth. It's inept. It's not investigated. And it's a real good place of throwing in, I think, detractors of everything not to look at. Dorothy is still on the case, especially after the Warren report comes out because she knows and has talked to Jack Ruby and feels like it's all bogus. She's going to head back down to New Orleans. She goes with one of her hairdressers and she's going to call him in New Orleans and say, get back to New York and never tell anybody you were here. She's close to something. Dorothy returns back from New Orleans and she's scared. She's going to get a gun. She's shutting herself off from people. She tells her good friends what I know would get you killed. She believes her phones are being tapped. She has the story of a lifetime and wants to crack it. She is going to sign a book deal with Random House. Her book is going to be called Murder One. She is about to be a legend cracking the case of the century. But at this time, She's keeping quiet. She's really scared. She's changed her will. She wants to prove who killed the president and why, and she is being circled by the vultures. By 1965, she's still doing What's My Line, and she is absolutely dedicated to writing her book, Murder One. Let's go ahead and take us to November 7th, 1965. She, it's a Sunday night. She'll go in and tape What's My Line that night wins, totally guesses. And before she heads out of the studio, she's going to get a phone call. There's a guy that she's been dating. Remember, Richard Colmar is sort of a loveless alcoholic, but there is this journalist from Columbus, Ohio, Ron Pataki. And Ron Pataki is a Midwestern journalist, about two decades younger than Dorothy. But somehow that summer in the summer of 1965 is Dorothy's getting really close to Cracking the case of a lifetime. It is a sudden interest. It is a new romance. Dorothy has a new friend and lover, Ron Pataki. By the fall of 65, Dorothy highly suspects that Ron is leaking her information to the wrong people. They meet that night at PJ Clark's for a drink. It is a legendary saloon, PJ Clark's is in Manhattan. Dorothy after PJ Clark's is going to split and head back to the Regency Hotel Bar. This is a little closer to her house. There's a party, like an after party with the contestants of What's My Line that night. She's seen with Ron Pataki there too, talking quietly in a corner. And then Dorothy disappears. The last time she's seen is about 1 a.m. No one sees her walk out or get a cab. No one can account for how she actually gets home. Now, the people who know Ron Pataki will talk about this later. There's a casino boss in Las Vegas who was like, yeah, we knew Ron. He was in trouble with the wrong people to be in trouble with. There's definitely something shady happening here. The following morning, November 8th, 1965, one of Dorothy's two hairdressers, this one Mark Sinclair, comes to fix her hair and will find Dorothy dead on the third floor in a bedroom she never sleeps in. Dorothy never sleeps in this room because this is the room where her husband would cheat on her. Dorothy sleeps on the fifth floor of the home. There's a lot of suspicious things happening here. The air conditioning in the room is turned down to freezing cold. Dorothy has on a full face of makeup, her fake eyelashes, her hairpiece from the night before. 
Dorothy never goes to sleep with any of this. She always goes to sleep with a clean face. She is outfitted in a peignoir and a robe, which is unusual. She has a book in her lap, but the book is upside down. It is a book that she's already read, and her reading glasses are nowhere in the room. She's blind without her glasses. I get this feeling. Lipstick is also found on her sleeve. It's very similar, eerily, to Marilyn Monroe's death, and it's very little investigated. The medical examiner for Manhattan is the one who should have been called to make the official death report, but instead, the medical examiner from Brooklyn is called? The Brooklyn territory, sort of controlled by the mob? Like, it's suspicious from the beginning. So the medical examiner from Brooklyn is called, and there's an empty bottle of secondol on the table, and the autopsy's done, and it's determined that this was a case of barbiturates and alcohol, and no more is investigated, circumstances undetermined, ruled an accidental death. Investigators, let's talk about this. This is a woman with a 35-year career at the top of her game, about to make the scoop of the century. Everything, like Rita Mae Brown said, in the world to live for. There are a lot of questions that remain, and people are very reluctant to talk. Again, in the more recent years, a writer named Mark Shaw has released a book called The Reporter Who Knew Too Much About Dorothy and All of the Potential Suspects Surrounding Her Death. In my opinion, it is highly unlikely that I think she had an accidental overdose. It is not a suicide either. She is a devout Catholic, publishing a book, loves her kids. By 1968, there is toxicology that's re-examined, which sheds a little bit more light. It's found not just secondol and alcohol in her system. There is a mixture of three kinds of barbiturates. A mixture of these barbiturates would not be taken accidentally. Here's what's even weirder. Dorothy was not a smoker. Dorothy was never a smoker, but her autopsy levels show extremely high nicotine levels, like off the charts. I think it's a clear case of murder. Dorothy needed to be silenced, maybe by Carlos Marcello, maybe by Washington, D.C., but nobody is going to let her write that book. She is the most credible reporter of all time, what could she have revealed? My money's potentially on Ron Pataki. The weird thing about this as a follow-up, y'all, he will write a number of really bizarre and incriminating poems. Like, the first one that's really odd is uh, <laughs> silencing someone at a typewriter. The next is about a bartender poisoning a drink. He says he wrote them for fun, but... It's all a little too suspicious for me. Dorothy's husband, Richard Colmar, will commit death by suicide in 1971. Dorothy's daughter believes that she was murdered. Her friends do too. When Marvin Belli, Jack Ruby's attorney, heard that Dorothy had been killed, Marvin's first words were, they've killed Dorothy, Jack is next. Sure enough, Jack Ruby Dies January 3rd, 1967, about a year and a few months after Dorothy. I find there is such a similar thread in the story of Dorothy Kilgallen and Dominic Dunn. They are both on the front rows of famous trials. 
They are both writing truth to power and calling out injustices within the legal system as they see them. After Dorothy's death, mostly largely forgotten. Uh, People don't talk about her very much. People don't remember all of her contributions and her significance into so many different areas. Similar to Dominic, she played in all kinds of arenas. She knew the rich and powerful. She was widely respected, not only by other journalists, but people within all walks of life. Dorothy Kilgallen, hell of a woman, a life cut too short at the age of 52. I'm going to wrap this with a little bit more writing from that piece from Rita Mae Brown, which I think from 1979 is pretty insightful, especially if we layer this 40 plus years onward. Rita Mae Brown will write in this book review for Lee Israel's Kilgallen. Dorothy Kilgallen drank too much. She was disappointed in her husband and sometimes disappointed in her three children, but she was not a desperately unhappy woman, drowning in a vat of booze and pills. This later version of Dorothy gained precedence only after her death. As with Martha Mitchell, seemingly the easiest way to attack a woman who has vital political information is to declare her a lush, nuts, or both. Lee Israel painstakingly reveals Kilgallen's character. Without bogus psychologizing, the author manages to present a complex, compelling woman and help us understand why she did what she did. Kilgallen deserves to be ranked with serious biography, just as its subject deserves to be ranked a serious journalist. Israel is at her best when showing Kilgallen up against the Warren Commission, the FBI, and a hostile administration. Avoiding political controversy, she was content to live for herself, her family, her friends. Nothing larger than her own life or her own needs motivated her until she had a fateful secret interview with Jack Ruby in early 1964. She could have chosen to forget it, What appeared to her to be the horrific implications of conspiracy and the death of a president? She could have backslid into her life of glamour. The more she probed, the more she felt her own life was in jeopardy. She thought the JFK assassination touched the soul of America and she wasn't going to stop. She put the truth first and paid the price. We are not accustomed to finding heroes in middle-aged quirky women. The left could never stand Kilgallen. The right, meanwhile, attacks the left. The feminist movement might balk at her exaggerated dependence on men, so they won't salvage her reputation. The other political movements would probably find even the mention of her name a cause for hilarity. So Kilgallen remains difficult to catalog. Lee Israel's Kilgallen succeeds not only as a biography— but works as a moral reminder. We cannot afford casually to dismiss anyone on the basis of appearance and manner. Or gender, or the fact that you are a truth teller of the most magnificent degree, Dorothy Kilgallen. Investigators, that is the amazing life and very curious death of Lady Boss Crime Reporter, Dorothy Kilgallen, and so, so much more. Thank you 
for tuning in and spending your time with me today. We will be back next Monday for a continuing episode in our New York state of crime. Until we meet again, friends, keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends. 